Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, a series in which we take a deep dive into the Dungeon Master's Guides written for the previous editions of our favorite game. We aim to discuss what worked, what didn't work, what got pulled into future editions, and what got left by the side of the road. On the sixth day of Edition Wars, my true love gave to me six geese laying laying those sweet, sweet golden eggs that we exchange for XP. Oh no, wait. We're on third edition now. Right. If this were first edition, it would be the egg of Coot. That's it would be, yes, yes. Or the egg of the Phoenix. You know, right. you never know which one it is. Yeah. It's it's deep cuts o'clock, folks. Deep cuts o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> so third edition so actually full disclaimer here i am using the 3.5 edition i am also using the 3.5 dmg um, there's just not enough material difference between the 3.0 dmg and the 3.5 dmg to make any hay out of i mean we get into some nuance here but that is that is a bit picky even for us <laughs> Excellent. So, do you want to start us off? Sure. So, I mean, the very first thing in the book, really, is uh, a sidebar with a justification for this book existing. Um, it's wire revision. The purpose of sidebars is the next sidebar. I love that. It's, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty meta. But. Yeah, it, it t- totally is. You can imagine the person looking directly into the camera while they say it. Right. I'm doing an aside. Why an aside? Yeah. What is right? the purpose of an aside? <laughs> How do asides work in Shakespearean theater? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> in in iambic pentameter. Um, uh, we should do a whole episode in haiku. Um, the seasonal references are going to be the challenge there, I feel. <laughs> Probably, a people, yes. A lot of people think that it's just the meter, but no, you really need your <laughs> seasonal reference. I'm sticking with that. All right. Sounds good. Um, so... So, well, wait, do you agree with the justification of the revision? Oh, yeah. The, the fact of the matter is that um, 3.0 got some really, really intense field testing in its first four years of use. I mean, it was incredibly popular at the time, and it had not, it had seen good, robust playtesting before release that w- didn't hold a candle to what came immediately after. And so the wheels were already coming off by 2003. Uh, it was, you know, things like look at all these dead levels in my poor ranger class, or wow, uh, haste sure is baller for everyone. And why do I have any other spells? Okay, like yeah, it had to happen. Um, and. You know, from a perspective now, they should have gone farther with making more changes, but that's okay. Um, they wanted to keep to you know, the beating heart of 3.0 while making a bunch of fixes, and they did. And you know, the the revision is mostly very good stuff. Um, I'd have to really, really refamiliarize myself with it to remember what it was that I didn't love, but I, I remember there were some things that that left me a little cold at the time. Um, mm-hmm. In those heady days of 17 years ago. Oof. <laughs> it seems like it shouldn't be that long ago. 
right? On the other hand, 2020 yep. is like 18 years long. So, well, I mean, I just got out of college, right? It was, just recently, I got out of co- Oh, it was 17 years ago in 2003. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I seem to have huh. aged. Uh, what happened? Anyway. Um, yeah. Don't ask me when I graduated high school. Many of my friends are now scowling at their, uh, you know, phones or whatever they're listening to this podcast on, <laughs> thinking, you, old, come. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the point here is that uh, the revision was needed, but in terms of the DMG itself, it's it's not such a huge set of changes that we need an episode for both. So we chose the 3.5 edition. Right. Uh, in no small part because it was the easier one for me to pull off the shelf. But also it, it is the better of the two by uh, some margin. I'm not going to say mm-hmm. a large margin, but some margin. I mean, it's it's. I'm looking at it in PDF because I don't have a hard copy. It's the only edition that I don't have a hard copy in. And so, if that tells you anything about how I feel about third edition, yep. then you're reading between the lines because I didn't say it. <laughs> how diplomatic and yet unsubtle. <laughs> uh, well, so so the thing about this DMG that really distinguishes it in the whole from first ed and second ed DMGs is that. Um, while there is you know, advice and persuasive writing here, that is not the main of the book in my recollection and in what I'm getting from skimming it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it is much more prescriptive and you know, defining procedures to follow. Uh, there's a lot of tables of things um, that... You might or might not use in play, but you know a good random table is a handy tool to have in all mm-hmm. kinds of different ways. Um, it's it's actually kind of hard to explain because it's impossible to say that first and second edition did not have a ton of minutia and tables and very specific pieces and bits of game that that were expected or maybe that's the wrong word that, that were utilized um, to it's impossible to say that third edition has that and first and second didn't, or that, you know, those third edition has it and, you know, OE didn't because OE had a ton of fiddly bits. It's just that they weren't all necessarily written in the, in the rules. Um, but it's hard to say that, but it is actually exactly what we mean because the third edition shifted to such a minutia-based rule system in a different way from the way first and second edition were minutia-based, if, if that if that makes right. sense. Uh, and that was a very deliberate design choice. Uh, Absolutely. We may have yeah. talked about this before, but the the thinking was that they needed to standardize the play experience um, so that it was much more consistent between any two tables that were running D and D right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In, in first and second, no question you could get just such an unrelatedly different experience due to, you know, optional rules, house rules, different ways of approaching sort of the flow of play and everything that any two tables running two E like you could 
very likely barely tell that they were both D and D, and they they found that to be a problem, um, in part because of problematic players and problematic DMs. Um, right. Like even even now, there's a lot of discussion around sort of problem players and tyrannical DMs or whatever in uh, online discussion. And a lot of that came from first and second ed and they were trying to fix it by legislating everything. Mm -hmm. Right. Let me put it this way. Um, When every decision is up to DM fiat, that is the DM chooses. Yep. That means that you're relying on the DM to make good decisions at all turns um, or at every turn. And um, while that is an ideal and it sounds wonderful, it's not always the case in actual play. So in order to make it so that players were not subjected to DMs who didn't allow for, or let me put it like this, DMs who were inconsistent in their application of certain decisions or rules or rulings were problematic. And the style of DMing in a lot of, in a lot of games and a lot of game groups was very aggressive, arbitrary. So that style of play, that style where the DM is out to get the players, right? Or the DM doesn't take enough care with detail to be consistent with players. That's what they're trying to fix. Sure. And players who don't follow the rules, who try to create a, a character or use a kit uh, in a way that's not intended. Sure. Those types of things, right? Like, so, you know, back in first edition, there were not a ton of options for players unless you played a wizard and then you're talking about spells. Um, but second edition had all of the classes and then the kits. And so you had this sort of explosion of customizing abilities, right? Or customization ability. But it was sort of, um, widespread and inconsistent in terms of power levels, right? Uh, So you might have a DM who really enjoys certain classes, but not others, or likes certain kits, but not others, uh, and plays a very aggressive, with a very aggressive stance towards the players, right? Um, Adversarial, that's the word I was looking for. If a DM is being very adversarial with the players, that's a different kind of game. And I think one of the reasons that they pushed toward this direction in third edition is because they wanted to take away the fiat part of the dungeon master's job, right? If we give you a rule for everything, then there's no inconsistency, right? And so that DM, regardless of what character is being played or what behavior the player is performing or whatever, or, or how the DM actually feels, if they're playing by the rules, there is a rule for everything yeah i mean that's that's certainly the goal uh, sort of a rule for everything and everything in its place mm-hmm. um, and i mean my experience of it was that it did not in any way quell rules arguments it instead meant that any rule i could not instantly remember and wanted to just get past was now an argument instead right um it was, it was 
not a great experience for me over the many years of running 3.5. I mean, and, and I'm not, you know, so, you know, there's a, there's a conversation there to be, to be had about the intention of a set of rules versus the real actual usage of and uh, of those rules at a table and uh you know i mean heck fourth edition is a is a great example of this where i think there was a lot of intention put into the design that was played very differently from the the actual intention that the designers maybe wrote it with some of it was spot on, but I think a lot of some of it was not spot on, and I think third edition had that same problem, but for different reasons. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. So the the book does open with its most advice heavy section, right? Um, so so chapter one, running the game, um, starts off very advicey. Um, about how to work with players, how to run a game session, how to handle metagame thinking. Um, there's a fairly lengthy example of play that um, it ventures into the very improbable for things for players to actually say or do. Um, <laughs> let's say I, I think you'd have a hard time selling this script as a radio play. That's, that's what I'm going to say. Um, and... So it's just got a lot to say about being uh, a GM, and I mean, it talks about different styles of play. Yeah, you know, so th- so that you can have a sort of understanding of maybe think. You know, look if if this is the first time a DM's reading this, and that's the first section that they really read, that's a good thing, right? Because they might think, well, that sounds like the kind of game I would like to play, like that that style. It's yeah. good to have thought about it, at least. Yeah, I mean, I think that they sort of, in style of play, they talk about their spectrum sort of being from kick in the door to deep immersion storytelling, um, and then other axes of variation, such as seriousness versus humor, um, that kind of thing. And, I mean, certainly my experience of uh, 3.5 was that it was so mechanics forward and uh, so driven by a need to optimize just to survive and sort of stay competitive with the monsters that um, a lot of deep immersion storytelling got lost. Uh, that's much more sort of my speed. And it was much harder to, much harder sense to create at the table because figuring out things like, well, how am I going to get the feats I need for the prestige class I want by the level I want it so I'm not wasting levels? It's hard. It, it, it creates a lot of table talk, and that it was very tedious uh, if it wasn't specifically the game you showed up to play. And so it wound up being the game people showed up to play. And, well, that's... It's not really either kick in the door or deep immersion storytelling. It is um, a system mastery metagame that you know, very much drove three uh, O and three five. Um, and so, just to be clear, um, that's not really my style. That that's not my preferred style. Sounds like it's not your preferred style. But we're not 
we're not knocking anybody who loved this. I mean, there were a lot of people who loved this game, and that's not, you know, we're not we're not here to yuck your yum. Okay, we're just saying that the rules actually lead to a specific type of expected play. So while this first chapter is nice, you you have a hard time actually implementing what it says in it if you actually play by all the rules. Is that right. fair? I, I agree with that. Um, I mean, the, the way feats work and the kinds of feats that are available really drive that uh, right out the gate with 3.0 and 3.5. Um, and then the uh, the open gaming license and the absolute explosion of third party content uh, just you know t- turn the knob on that and break it off entirely, mm-hmm. right? Um, because in so far as there was ever you know a, a steady hand at the tiller for game balance of all of third edition D and D that hand had nothing at all to do with third party products. (laughs) Right. But again, that, that system mastery, um, the the favor the game gave to system mastery was in no way an accident. So no way an accident. It was, it's a way to create an emotional hook. You get better at the game and you get more rewards. That's an emotional hook. And as as you're saying, it's fine to enjoy that. Uh, an enormous number of people continue to enjoy it. 3.5 remains popular, um, both in its own right and in its later incarnation as Pathfinder First Edition. Uh, it's an incredibly popular game. Uh, it just isn't where my tastes have sort of developed too and same for you. Right. Right. Well, it's not, that's not where my taste started. So, and, and because I, and also to be fair, uh, because I never really played very much third edition by when third edition came out, I was still playing second edition. Actually, I still playing first edition with some second edition things bolted on, but, I was already mo- I was moving more towards other games at that time. Not that I hadn't played other games before, but in terms of campaign play and long-term play, I was playing other stuff. And then I took about a five or six year break. So um, actually, well, I guess a four to five year break. So then when I came back in third edition had like 40 books or third 3.5 had like 40 books. And there was no way I was touching that. Yep. So to be fair for, for my, for me, it's not because I read it and thought, Oh, this isn't my game. I hate this. It sucks or played it and said that it's just that I never played it that much. I've played several sessions now, you know, sure. from between when it was released now, but several sessions is way different from how this was played. This was played weekly for hours, you know, by multiple groups, thousands and thousands of groups across the country across the world maybe right so i'm i'm not knocking on it i'm just saying for me my tastes didn't sway that way in the first place and because i never sort of made a a transition as a group over to third edition and played third edition long term i never got a taste for it i definitely think that if you if you really love first and second edition third edition is an acquired taste and some people end up acquiring it and some people don't. Yep. So having said that, uh, chapter one actually is, it has a lot in here about game balance, 
whether or not you need to know all the rules, how to prep a game session, knowing your PCs, setting the stage for a session, pacing, maps and miniatures. I mean, there's a lot of good advice in here. I do agree that this is kind of the chapter that is really the, hey, you have no idea what's going on, but you want to play D&D. Here's an overview that gets really detailed in some spots about how this actually should work. And if you're the DM, here's your job. And I tell you what, I had completely forgotten how many rules variants there were going to be in this book. Good <laughs> yeah. gracious, there are a lot of variant approaches inside bars. Skills with different abilities, um, instant kills, uh, automatic hits and misses, striking the cover instead of a missed target, sapient mounts, roll initiative each round. Just, like, that's that's many yeah. pages in a row and they each have a variant rule sidebar at the bottom, um, which does sort of run against that standardization of experience kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does, but it's, yeah, I, I agree, but it's allowing for, you know, we know there are some things not in the PHB. Yep. So here they are <laughs> and here's some variants on them. Um, I think, I think I'm ready to skip ahead just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's let's move ahead. So I think that one of the first really interesting things that we come to in Chapter 2 is um, Table 2-5, Difficulty Class Examples. Uh, it's on my page 31. Um, and so it is a, a table of difficulty classes running from negative 10 to 43 for different kinds of skill checks. Uh, and so it has an example of the the action. Uh, the for example, for example, walking a tightrope. Walking a tightrope, tying a firm knot, tracking a goblin that passed over hard rocks a week ago, and it snowed yesterday. Um, and then mm-hmm. it tells you the key ability that and skill that you roll there. So that might be heal with wisdom, diplomacy with charisma, um, survival with wisdom, and so on. Mm-hmm. Or and save. Then, Sometimes it's a save. Oh, or save. Uh, and then who could do it? Um, who could possibly achieve that DC? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, some of the use cases here are intended to be fairly extreme. Um, mm-hmm. Hear the sounds of a pitched battle is a listen uh, ability check. Uh, uh, who could do it is a commoner on the other side of a stone wall. Right. Well, all right. So to be clear, it actually defines what it means by who could do it. It says, this is an example of a character that would have about a 50% chance to succeed at this action. Right. Okay. And so when it names something by class, it assumes that the character of that class has a skill, has the skill that is being called for. Right. And, and so other other characters could also attempt it and either succeed or fail and have a better or worse chance. It's not sure, but this is trying to give you the 50% mark. Uh, right. And that thing about um, on the other side of a stone wall that I just mentioned, well, the, the, the change in li- listen difficulty that you're going to get from being on the other side of a stone wall is going to get spelled out later in the rules. In <laughs> right some massive table of modifiers to uh, listen difficulties. 
mm-hmm. somewhere. I, I'm not going to go find it, but just take my word for it that it's in here somewhere. Um, because that level of DCs need to be calculated, you know, down to quite detailed values mm-hmm. is very much the sense of the book here. Right. And so there's another example having to do with hearing. It says, uh, hearing people talk on the other side of the door, and who could do it? An absent-minded sage being distracted by allies, right? And so once again, right? Once again, here's the situation where you're going to get modifiers for that. Like that whole absent-minded thing, that's not an accident that they wrote that. I mean, I don't know that absent-minded shows up as an actual – Value no, no, you get to but, Unearthed Arcana 3.5, but right, but you get what I'm saying though, right? No, like it, but they're trying to really set a statement about the types of it. So, here's what's interesting about this table I actually like this table, but what's funny about it is they're trying to give you a kind of baseline for you know how to figure out you know, what, what kind of DC to set for a certain type of activity. And I appreciate that. I, this is definitely information that the DM needs, right? Especially if they're new and they don't really know how to just, you know, after you've been running a game, a game system for a while, you kind of get an idea of, well, here's about what a DC 10 is. And, and you can then adjudicate on the fly. You don't need to look up something on a table every time, but for a new person, and for somebody who's coming from first or second edition and or, and never played third edition, or they're coming from third edition or whatever, they're a new DM though, they only ever played, this is invaluable information. But what's really funny about it is exactly what you're bringing up, that here's this table, it's invaluable information, and now the rest of the book is going to spend all of its time and energy showing you how to modify yeah. <laughs> this stuff. And, and also, what's really funny is too, I... Like, if you don't really know how to read this table, it can be confusing. For example, if you look at um, the uh, about one quarter of the way from the bottom of the table, there's a DC 25, uh, find out from a city's inhabitants who the power behind the throne is. Okay, that's a charisma gather information check, right? And a high level bard can do it. Okay, if it's a DC 25. So... Is there wiggle room there? Like, <laughs> what's high level? Um, what if you're in a city and everybody suspects who the power behind the throne is, right? Like, everybody right. knows that Wormtongue has, you know, everybody suspects Wormtongue has, you know, uh, dirtied the mind of the king. Well, I mean, he was a, was a man of Rohan once. He doesn't, he doesn't <laughs> have to be Saruman's slave. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> you get the idea, though, right? So, players, if your DM introduces the vizier to the king as Wormtongue, I think you know what to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like, so what's funny is that this table tries to be really instructive, but on some level, it's less than helpful. <laughs> So anyway, we can move on from that. I don't want to get stuck on on that table uh, for too long, but I do actually like the table. Right. I mean, we could do 20 minutes on bandying words with a witless worm, but that's (laughs) what one feels. Um, That's right. So the next interesting piece to me is adjudicating magic. Um, And I appreciate some of the things they care to include here. Um, Handling divinations is a, a classic among gaming problems 
if there are divinations, if there are ways to gather information without um, putting in legwork and engaging in risk, then I bet people will do that. Or if there is risk and it's just risk that is easier to manage or you know heal after the fact, then I bet people will do that. So it's really hard to to like balance divinations, especially things like scry. And so this notes that problems include the player could learn too much, um, thus spoiling the mystery. This is your classic, well, there's a murderer in this town, and I'm going to use detect evil. I bet the murderer is the evil guy. Mm-hmm. Which, okay, we already did our you know, bit on alignments, but anyway... We don't have to do it again. <laughs> I'm not actually trying to go do into another uh, treatise on alignment. Um, followed by needing answers on the fly, which things like, I scry this, scry this person at a totally random time of day. What are they doing? If you don't feel completely confident improvising an answer, well, maybe that gets awkward. Um, and a lot of the time, if they are doing that, you actually do want them to happen to look in at just the right moment to learn the interesting thing because having players spend their spells and learn something boring is not helping either. Right? The player did make a choice. You'd like them to at least get something for their choice. I also want to say that the advice in this little section is less than helpful. <laughs> it basically says, you know, it's difficult coming up with a way to convey information uh, that that is being conveyed with the divination spell, especially when it says something like that advice can be as simple as a short phrase or might take the form of a cryptic rhyme or omen. And then it says cryptic rhymes are often difficult to come up with in the middle of a game. Well, no, duh. So what's the advice? Oh, one trick is to create a freaking rhyme ahead of time. Well, thanks a lot. Cool. What if I didn't know my players were going to cast that? Uh, right. I mean, it's easy for my wife. She's a poet. For me, ooh, ooh. Next time it happens in my game, I'm going to say, hold on, i got to make a phone call. Ring, ring, hello, rabbit. <laughs> that, that seems fair to me, actually. Yeah, she'd be, <laughs> okay. she, she would enjoy that. All right, sounds good. Is that like phone a friend? Do I win a million dollars? I'll share. <laughs> uh, well, you only get one per campaign, apparently. Oh, well, darn. Right. Anyway, I, I just, I, I'm laughing at this advice because it's so obvious, but... Also unhelpful. Right. Right. It's not really advice. It's just, duh, you should have planned better. Right. It stops it. Yep, that's a problem. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Thanks. Cool. Yeah, um, excellent. Mm-hmm. But but next up is uh, the guidance for creating new spells. And that's also pretty interesting stuff. It Very short section, though, I feel like, compared to what we see in things like the first and second edition. Well, so in terms of guidance for creating a new spell, it's actually surprisingly similar in its format to the 5th Ed DMG. Uh, they just don't tell you what the, what they mean by dice, what dice size they're talking about. And you, know, you have uh, arcane spells that scale much more aggressively than divine spells, which just isn't a thing in 5th, uh, in right? right. Th- that, that's a distinction without any difference. 
right. but I, but I mean in comparison to first and second edition. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. It's right. Well, so like the the damage scaling advice, I don't recall that being a a thing. Even a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I just mean also the section. They were much more yeah. effusive with language and oh, yeah. talking about the importance of creating new spells and research and all these things. And here it's kind of it's it's very mechanical in essence. It's very much okay, sometimes people want to create new spells, the DM or a player, here's some guidelines. Boom. Well, and it's gonna be relevant to later discussion, but mm-hmm. this is the addition that really turns away from you know, you get to a midpoint in the campaign, and now you start having a lot of downtime to work on personal projects. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. That's not how third edition do. Uh, you're not building a castle unless you buy the Stronghold Builder's Guidebook to get some rules for that. Which, <laughs> I mean, you can do. It's not offering the same kind of thing, but it's right. an interesting experience in itself. And so, without that expect- expectation of downtime, and with a great increase in the number of spells known classes, then spell research and both to add new spells to your spell book and to um, create new spells from whole cloth, that's going to be much less a part of play, right? Right. Because yeah. in this edition, uh, sorcerers and bards are core classes, and moreover, bards now have spells known instead of functioning like wizard's light mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they're sorcerer's light not wizard's light <laughs> uh, by the way folks mm-hmm. feel free to go back to our why even our sorcerers episode for a refresher course on how that yes works. please do anything else you want to say about that no I'm, I'm set on that part and it's going to lead us straight into rewards and we've mm-hmm. talked about this section a couple times now both on the experience point side and on the treasure side. But the the super, super short refresher course is that um, both XP and gold are filling up progress bars for you in this edition. Mm-hmm. And at various milestones of those progress bars, you get a cool thing. The cool thing is either a level or a better magic item. But buying magic items and enchanting magic items to make them better are both core parts of the 3.5 and well, 3035 experience. And so while while gold does not directly apply to experience points in this edition, it does directly allow you to purchase things to make your character substantially better. Right, for sure. In a very different way than first and second edition did so. So next up is the experience point tables. I'm I'm trying to go through this at a reasonable clip. Um, the experience. Oh, I was already was... skipping ahead to uh, to death. <laughs> oh sure. Um, I just don't have. I mean, I don't have a lot to say about the experience and, yeah. and all that. Oh, we, we've covered yeah. all of it before, so you know that's it, it, fair enough. What the one thing we say about experience tables is just remember, kids, all of your XP comes from killing monsters has never been the law of the land in D anD. d All right, we're good. Yeah, and you can tell that from this table. <laughs> uh, yes, well, uh, it that that table is going to be exactly uninstructive in that fact. But mm-hmm, right. the modifying XP awards and assigning ad hoc XP awards sections are going to be more indicative, right. uh, and story awards in the next page is much more mm-hmm. helpful. Anyway, um, yeah, and there's a, there's to be fair, there's a, a a variant sidebar talking about faster or slower experience gain. Right. So, so character death, um, 
this gets into how uh, Ray's dead costs you a level and a bunch mm-hmm. of cash, but there's no system shock roll. There's no loss of con score unless you are uh, level one, I believe. Uh, don't die at level one. It's bad for you. Um, yeah, because it's, it's two points of con loss. Is it two? Lord. I think so, yeah. Oh. Um, if the character was first level, he or she loses two points of constitution instead of losing level. Gracious. That's that's big, people. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's obvious to say, hey, it'd be good if you survived a second level, but here we are. <laughs> um. Um, and, and the thing is, like, this is also the first edition where rolling up a new character because you died at first level is not the quick part of the game that it used to be. Uh, right. I mean, by, by late second edition, especially thanks, thanks skills and powers, it wasn't quick yeah. anymore yeah, 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 because yeah. you were assigning all these skill points right. and other jobs. Sure. But, but, but yeah. basic second edition, right? Like just For PHB sure. second edition was relatively quick. There were some nuances, but yeah, if you knew the system, it'd be very, very quick. But in third edition, no way. No way are you rolling up a character in 20 minutes during the break of that session because your character died. Uh, unless you already have incredibly high system mastery, no. Yeah, and even if, right, there's still – it depends on which books the campaign is using. And right, if yeah. you have an idea or conception of what prestige class that you would like to go for. Um, yes, I agree. Yeah, so anyway. And, and so this is you know, guidance for bringing in new characters – if a character dies and stays dead um, after first level. That's mm-hmm. always good to have. Every game needs it. I wouldn't say that this is you know, incredibly special advice. I mean, it's, it's hitting, it's hitting the bases, you know, it's not, the, you know, the, the thing is that this book in particular, because the system is so mechanized, a lot of it does just seem very obvious, specific, advice right there it doesn't seem like oh there's any fantastical or wonderful advice in here it's just very um work a day like it's utilitarian the advice is very utilitarian i would agree with that so moving forward to chapter three adventures adventures uh you know right at the gate we're talking about uh adventure motivations and structures and this is good advice to have Mm-hmm. Uh, this is how do we even run this game kind of stuff, which you absolutely right. need. And a table of 100 adventure hooks never goes out of style, which is not to say that all of these are you know, award-winning, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them are very sort of tropey, you might say. Cultists are kidnapping potential sacrifices. You have right. told me nothing about that adventure. Right. That's fine. Yeah. People grow suspicious of half-orc merchants peddling gold dragon parts in the market. Okay. <laughs> Putting it mildly, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you've got colossal vermin are straying out of the desert to attack settlements. And an innocent man about to be hanged pleads for someone to help him. Like, there's a hell of a hook. But it does, still doesn't tell you anything about why he's innocent or if you should help him or <laughs> what the story is behind it. But the, the, I do like, I, you know, this is the kind of thing that I, I really like. Also this whole, r- the writing in this part, because it is 
system non-specific, it's widely applicable. It's it moves away from the mechanistic discussion type that we are talking about. The structure of an adventure can be applied to any game. Well, right. I mean, everyone who uh, contributed any words to this DMG had been playing at least in second edition. Mm-hmm. I, I guarantee. I mean, the book was designed by Monty Cook. Well. He weren't no spring chicken when mm-hmm. he wrote the DMG, mm-hmm. um, and the the rest of the design team um, was it, you know, included Jonathan Tweet, Skip Williams, uh, additional design from Peter Atkinson, uh, Rich Baker, Andy Collins, David Noonan. Not spring chickens. They, they had learned a lot about best DMing practices. Um, it's just that. In all seriousness, they've explained it in some very dry ways. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But they, they're making good points about best practices here. Uh, things like don't leave the PCs by the nose. Uh, PCs don't need to be spectators in the adventure. That would have been good advice for the Time of Troubles modules in 2nd edition. <laughs> which I will yeah. never stop dragging. Never. <laughs> uh, the Deus Ex Machina solution. Um doesn't work in adventures. It only sort of works in Greek theater. I, I will submit if you have an adventure where there is a chorus that comes out occasionally to tell the audience what happened off stage, then I would be okay with the Deus Ex Machina. Right, that's kind of amazing. Actually, that would yeah, be yeah, really interesting. Yeah. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> uh, but you can't have a chorus come to your gaming table because of social distancing. That's true. So please don't do that. Uh, and then finally, preempting the character's abilities. That's a really tough one, that one paragraph is not enough nuance to mm-hmm. to discuss that. There's, there's right times and places for things like, uh, you can't teleport inside this dungeon. Right. I'm sorry, your ability to teleport is turned off in here. You have to get to the one place in the dungeon where you can teleport. That That is actually valid design. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to be turning off like Misty Step. That's not actually great. I'm talking about, you know, teleport the spell, mm-hmm. uh, turning that off so that PCs can't sort of blip to the end. Yeah, that's fine. Um, this is 3.5, so anything that turns off find the path is a good idea. Find the path, otherwise known as ruin the adventure. <laughs> dimension door in, rescue the kidnapped person, and dimension door out. Easy peasy. Because of its limited range, I <laughs> agree-ish with that. Uh, mm-hmm. But also, ways of foiling that are non-trivial. Sure. So it's fine. Um, and there's an adventure writer's checklist, and I appreciate that, though. I mean, I'd, I'd read a whole book of uh, just good advice on adventure writing, and have. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we get site-based adventures and event-based adventures, which is exactly the same idea as the uh, keyed versus triggered encounters business from second at DMG. Now we're going to get into encounter building. This is, this is where it gets real mathy is real mathy folks with uh, the encounter level number of creatures, you know, a mixed pair of, of things, right? There's a lot here to, to take in and, it really just kind of amounts to you need to look up what the table says and trust the table. So if you're a DM who's listening to this and you've never looked at this table and you do have the fifth edition DMG 
and you turn to page 80, where it has a table that talks about how to determine how difficult or easy the encounter is that you just designed based on the experience points and the levels of the PCs. This is that, but not as easy to read (laughs) and not as easy to adjudicate and put together. And also, if you're a DM of 5th edition and you've used that table, you know that it's not exactly correct all the time. Yeah, well... (laughs) And so my question question was to you was going to be, is this one in 3rd edition correct? Well, so... The big question is, what does correct mean? Uh, does it mean you you correctly drain about a quarter of the party's resources per encounter? Because it maybe, but that that's going to really make a big difference in where you sit in the arms race between optimizing your monsters with both their own abilities, like improving their feat selection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then things like um, buying them cool magic items with their, you know, encounter treasure budget. All of that is going to make a huge difference in how tough the encounter is. Like what you don't see is a lot of oh, we faced one monster that was many CRs higher than us, but because there was only one of them, right, we just wiped the floor with them, right? Um, that's absolutely a thing in in 5th ed. The reason it's not a thing in 3.5 is that their AC is going to scale out of reach, and the way iterative attacks work, like you might be landing your first attack each round. Odds are against you landing your second attack in a round. For your, for your third and later attacks, that's adorable. No. Uh, and so the game is doing that very intentionally. Well, it turns out that's um, really super mathy, and people kind of don't like it. And so, fifth ed doesn't do that. But that means that you know the eleventh level fighter is probably hitting with all three attacks in a round, or or if he mm-hmm. isn't, then he's still hitting with most of his uh, attacks in a round. And that means that he's doing a lot better job burning down the bad guy, right? So, so for me, it was more a um, I meant it more as a rhetorical question. Fair. Because what I'm trying what I'm trying to say is when you look at table three point two about encounter difficulty, it's trying to tell you how much of the total number of encounters that the PCs face. Like what percentage of those are easy, what percentage of those are challenging, what percentage of those are more than challenging and very difficult, what percentage are completely overpowering. Yeah. And I, I guess my point with that is it kind of gives you a, a look into how difficult this is to eyeball because that's really tough to set up. Yeah. And I just w- I wonder if the published third edition modules followed this, right? Or if they or if this is this is one of those guidelines that we don't use, but we know people will ask for it when they're creating their own first adventures. And once again, rhetorical. So, you know. <laughs> um, I, I, I couldn't give you any kind of uh, useful answer on how much this was even used in adventure writing. Um, I certainly didn't use it at in my adventure creation because it just calls for more uh, combat encounters in a day than I can stomach running. 
it definitely harkens back to that table we talked about in the last episode in the in the second edition with the here's how many encounters you should have you know in the morning and you know um but moving on from that there there is something nice on on the very next page it actually talks about difficulty factors and options that the dm has making an encounter more or less difficult yep and it it talks about things for example tight quarters make things difficult for rogues yep. and encounters with evil outsiders are difficult without a paladin or cleric. Well, they don't even get into the fact that um, encounters with undead may be harder without a cleric, but they're impossible for a rogue. Thanks guys. Yeah. Right. Um, but this is the kind of advice I appreciate because if you're new to the game and you don't know this about you know, there's this idea that the DM knows everything about all classes and all prestige classes and all level abilities and all of these things and all feats and how everything interchanges and works. And that's just not realistic. Yep. So it's it's kind of nice to see uh, this spelled out a little bit about, you know, the typical druid or ranger makes it easier to deal with encounters with animals and plants. That means if you don't have one of those you might have a little more difficulty dealing with those. Yep. And I mean, I'm all about knowing what kinds of wrinkles you can include in an encounter to make it more difficult without increasing the number of monsters. Like I would, I would absolutely buy books and books of that content. Um, and frankly, that's a big part of what uh, Keith Amon has built his writing career on recently. So, you know, I certainly could. So, so kind of moving along here, uh, we get a, a whole thing on treasure. It's a bunch of tables, like it's a it's a mess of tables, um, and it's a very prescriptive uh, paint by numbers approach to treasure that is going to get. I, I would go so far as to say recapitulated in fourth edition. Yeah, I mean, you've got this uh, expected wealth, right? The wealth comparison table tells you the expected wealth gain how much is from encounters and how much treasure per character you should have at whatever level. I mean, this is, you know, very, very prescribed, yep. very prescribed because it's not, it's not a, Oh, well, you know, here's the general guideline and this is about what you, should. this is like, no, this is what you have. This is what we expect. And if you don't have this, your characters aren't going to be able to keep up. Yep. And if you give too much, they're going to be ahead of the curve. Right. And, uh, you know, I did have some interesting experiences about that in 3.0. Uh, I was in a 3.0 game based on the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, where the GM was very consciously overly aggressive. He made the choice with intent to be very, very aggressive in handing out incredibly sweet magic items. Just incredibly boss gear. And... It had interesting, surprising outcomes, such as us just stomping the crap out of NPCs who <laughs> really thought they had one up on us. That was a really good time in terms of teaching me a lot about what Third Ed would do and not do. Um, and uh, with both with the, the guy who ran that game as a player and with other players, Third Ed for us created a sense of if you haven't uh, the player could tell the DM, Hey, look, you haven't handed out like the requisite amount of treasure. What's going on? Like, I know I'm falling behind and like, that's, 
that makes sense in third ed, but if what you're used to is GMing as a broader, let's say, art, uh, that's a really corrosive path of conversation. Yeah, um, and, and I, I agree with that. Obviously, I don't mean any slight to my friend. Like, he's one of my best friends. Um, he was, you know, one of the groomsmen in my wedding. It's just like that. That is kind of an example of why third ed would be monumentally hard for me to go back to, and and I feel like I should explain my biases in looking back at this content. Right. So anyway. Um, uh, so after all of these lists of treasure, then we get a little section on how to bring adventures together. Do you make them episodic? Do you weave plots together, et cetera, et cetera. Here's some advice. It's, it's, it's nice. It's okay. It's fine. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Um, it's not bad. It's not mind blowing. It's not bad. If you don't have any foundation in GMing, mm-hmm. you need to read this. On the other right. hand, it is dry enough that it is going to take a lot of reading to absorb it. I don't know what you need to do to sort of punch this up and make it grabby. Um, that's that's hard. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's important information and worth absorbing. And again, we're looking at uh, th- this small section, just bringing adventures together and between adventures and the dungeon. That, that This is all good edition neutral content that um, if this is the way you need to see it for it to like work for you, then here you go. Great. Um, One of the great things about having all these DMGs to go through is that brains work differently. Mm -hmm. And if you need to hear it one way and not another for it to stick, or if you need to come to it again at a later time in your life, here you go. Like, we're going to teach the same lesson a bunch of different ways, certainly at least six different ways. And let's see if we can make, make it all work and level up your jamming. Right. And then we get to the section of the book that is the beginning of the piece that shows me that third edition is so different from first and second. Not that the pieces before this page didn't show that, but let me give you an example. This section on dungeon terrain Okay. In previous edition DMGs, these this section would just have, um, you know, uh, hewn stone walls. What does that mean? Unworked stone walls. What does that mean? Superior masonry versus regular masonry versus uh, what's a flagstone? What's uneven? What's light rubble? What's what? How do you make a smooth stone floor in a dungeon? And it would be a very um, non-mechanical descriptive style of here's what you might find in a dungeon. You can describe the flagstones differently. You can describe the walls and ceilings differently. You can, you know, make this a a, a different type of environment. Here's what you get in the third edition DMG. And I, I, I'm, I probably sound like I'm denigrating this, but I'm, I'm not, it's just a, a me saying, wow, how different this is. For example, this is the moment of prescriptive, play this is the moment of prescriptive play like this is this is exactly what i had in my mind when i said that right so here's masonry walls the most common kind of dungeon wall masonry walls are usually at least one foot thick often these ancient walls sport cracks and crevices and sometimes dangerous slimes or small monsters living in these areas waiting for prey masonry walls stop all but the loudest noises okay perfect if it stopped there and then you get this sentence 
it takes a DC-20 climb check to travel along a masonry wall. Yeah, okay, you might be thinking, what's my what's the big deal, DM Sam? Who cares, right? Okay, let me give you the next one. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but superior masonry walls, basically the same description. Then it says, superior masonry walls are no more difficult to destroy than regular masonry walls, but they are more difficult to climb. The DC is 25. I see I see where it says that. I have such a, 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 a like, how can you, okay, you cannot follow the sentence, uh, covered uh, covered walls often bear paintings, carved reliefs, or other decoration. With this is harder to climb. Right, but but do you but know that's what a relief what, is? Right, but just but 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 bear with me. The next one, hewn stone walls. Lots of description. Right, they're three feet thick at least. Uh, anything thinner is going to collapse, and it takes a DC twenty five to climb them. Unworked stone walls only takes a DC fifteen. The wall's five feet thick. Then it talks about special walls. Then then it gets to floors, and it says flagstone, blah, blah, blah. Hewn stone floors. A DC-10 balance check is required to run or charge across such a floor. Failure means the character can still act, but cannot run or charge in this round. Okay, so here's my point. Almost every single one of these entries, and they're just a little two or three sentence entries, but the third or the last sentence is always a rules tick. Yep. Right? It's always a... The DC of balance and tumble checks is – five is added to it if you're in dense rubble, and it takes two squares of movement to enter the square. Uh, sliding floors, well, uh, if you have uh, this rule, then you have to apply this thing, and you're going to have to look over here. And ledges have railings. In such a case, you get a plus five circumstance bonus on your balance check to move along it. However, if you're next to a railing, you get a plus two circumstance bonus on your opposed strength check to, oppo- to oppose being – bull rushed off. It's all rules. It's all rules. So what I was getting at was this is the epitome of showing me the difference between first and second edition information in the DMG for the most part. Not that they don't have rules bits in there, but when they talk about a description of floors and rubble and traps and sliding doors, almost none of it is Here's your DC. Here's the type of check. Here's what has to move. Here's how this changes the circumstance bonus. Here's what that stacks with. Here's what it doesn't stack with. Here's how armor affects that. Here's this thing over here. Here's this other one, right? It's all about the rules in this edition. And this is why Brandis was saying in the beginning that while in theory this leads to a consistency in the DM's adjudication of situations what it really sometimes leads to rules lawyering argument because the player says, well, let me flip to my page here. This says that light rubble adds only two to the DC and you added five. And that's why I failed. Yeah. Yep. That'll happen. Ideally not often, but. And once again, so, you know, I'm sure I come off sounding very dismissive of it. I'm not dismissive of this. This is a great game for some people. I mean, some people love this. I mean, the section with locks, bars, and seals, it talks about how to, you know, chop doors down and do all that stuff. And then it gives you this list of DCs and what you, you know, if the DC is 10, it's a door just about anybody can break open. If it's 11 to 15, that door has needs a strong person. An average person might might need more than one try to do it, right? If it's a DC of 16 to 20, then almost anybody could break it, but it's going to take a lot of time. But if it's 21 to 25, then only a strong or very strong person could ever break it, and definitely not on the first try. I mean, 
this is great if that's the game you want to play. And a lot of people do, and I'm not knocking that. It's just not my style. Yep, I feel you. Um, I mean, even if you do enjoy this as part of your style of play, uh, this presentation of the information is punishingly impenetrable. Um, This would be a terrible way to try to digest all of that information. Now, I will say I love the art. I, I adore the art. I, I want to push back on you a little bit with that, okay? Because what I want to what I want to tell you is that there are some people, perhaps, that love this DMG the way you and I love first and second edition DMG, and that they poured over these sections and read them over and over again. Yeah, but Sam, some people joke a geese. The the look the 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 entry for crypt on page sixty three. Although sometimes constructed like a vault, a crypt can also be a series of individual rooms, each with its own sarcophagus or a long hallway with recesses on either side, shelves to hold coffins or bodies. Wise adventurers expect to encounter undead in a crypt, but are often un- are often willing to risk it to look for the treasure that's buried with the dead. Crypts of Multiculture, and it goes on again. That's nice to read. That would fascinate the hell out of me. If I was 12 or 14 when I was reading this, I might have fallen in love with it the same way I fell in love with the first edition DMG when I was 10. That's not unfair. Um, Worth pointing out, the two paragraphs the crypt gets are not very rulesy. Right. Uh, Well, that's why I picked that one. Yeah. Because a lot of the stuff above it, look at Shrine above it, a couple entries above it. It even mentions, you know, Blibdol Poop. (laughs) That's the Kuatoa God, by the way. I'm not just babbling. The Kuatoa are, though. That's right. <laughs> but, you, but you know what I'm saying, right? So yeah. some of these things are not the rules, the way that I – the way that I, I'm just trying to be fair in my presentation. I really knocked it for the floor and the walls and the doors, but there's also some nice sections in this chapter. Yeah, okay? that's fair. I'm trying to be fair with it. Also, the staircase image that's next to that crypt entry is hilarious. Yeah, the, the – um the spiral staircase there, the doors on the pages previous, those are really nice sort of grace notes to help the uninitiated visualize this content or to help solidify the image for someone who, I don't know, has seen the word so many times they've stopped really having the image in their, in their mind. Right. Right. Um, which is an easy place to get to in fantasy literature. Let me tell you. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but this just keeps going with dungeon features just so many miscellaneous features. Yeah, because then you get to the pi- you get to the pillars, and you get to well, you know, if it's a slender pillar, it only gives you a plus two bonus to your armor class and a plus one cover bonus for reflex saves. If it's a big one, though, you know, it's like oh god, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess size matters. All right, a size. Uh, I guess if the question is answered. I, I guess if you have to hold up a ceiling, size matters. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, so, you know, as you'd expect from listening to us go through the DM, second edition DMG, here's illumination, here's traps, um, here's a whole section on on traps and how to handle the elements of traps, and then sample traps. I mean, there's yep. a lot of sample traps. The The thing that always got me about this is the DMG just accepting that um, – there can't really be traps higher than CR10. <laughs> like they stop introducing traps after CR10 because you have so many things you can do, and your saving throws have gotten so good that they couldn't think of how to challenge you with traps. And I think that one of the great 
um, things about the fourth edition DMG is that they do really push back on that with uh, traps continuing all the way into epic tier and with math to support that. Because there's not really a compelling reason that um, your Whale of the Banshee trap couldn't have its you know difficulty to find, difficulty to disarm, and uh, difficulty to resist all cranked into the, the stratospheric numbers of late game third edition, right? Uh, they just didn't do that. It may be in part because they're thinking, well, the PCs just teleport past this anyway. And maybe they will. Uh, that's certainly a, a undervalued consideration in 5th ed traps and probably also 4th ed of just, look, we have this whole big death trap room you have to get through. Unfortunately, you can see the way out from here. So uh, I guess this isn't the threat we thought. See, my issue with this section is that I really feel like it could be a table. I mean, listen to this entry. Box of brown mold, CR2, mechanical, touch trigger, automatic reset, 5-foot cold aura, 3d6 cold, non-lethal, search DC 22, disabled device DC 16, market price 3,000 gold. I'm sorry, that's a table. Why do you have five pages of this list of these by CR when you could put it in a table? Yep, I get you. Well, and the market price really kills me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> How? What is the use case where you need the market value of this? Or are we going back to my old idea of uh, doing a, a full cost analysis of how much Halaster Black Cloak spent to build each floor of <laughs> Undermountain? Well, here's this wide mouth pit trap market price twenty eight thousand two hundred gold pieces. I look. This is three point five. I'm genuinely surprised that there isn't uh, like one table where you buy pit trap and another where you buy the wide mouthed enchantment for it. <laughs> Bite your tongue; it might be coming up, <laughs> right? Because I mean, if you look at the Melf's Acid Arrow Trap as compared to the Arrow Traps before it, right? The basic Arrow Trap of CR One. Well, that's actually sort of what's happening. It's just not handled in the adjective noun format that magic items carry. Like you could absolutely get into an adjective noun structure with all these traps. And I've heard worse ideas. (laughs) I've had worse ideas today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. So then it goes on to designing a trap and it gives you costs and different tables and it's, it's decent. You know, it's, it's a very mechanized, once again, very prescribed, you know, then it even gives you the craft DC for building a trap. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's actually pretty cool. I, I will grant that's pretty cool. The, the, the transparent, the, the, well, the illusion of transparency so that like anything, the NPCs can create, the PCs can, can create too, because the NPCs are just people. Mm-hmm. And so are right. you. That's actually really interesting. It does have issues that come out later in play, but it's interesting here for sure. The use cases where you would want to build some of these traps, the game is just not built enough around tower defense, right? Like an extended tower defense module where you need to build a bunch of traps to murder people with, that's an amazing idea. More people should be doing that. 
Mm-hmm. Bioshock 2 is a really good game, is what I'm telling you. <laughs> but but would it make an R- good RPG, though? Yeah, absolutely. The, aren't you just rolling for your craft DC and then figuring out how long it takes you? Oh, well, And then you pull out the map and you just say where you're putting them? I mean... Right. That That's fine. The point of the trap is that if you can maneuver the NPC into that space, you get a bunch of free attacks. It's it's an action economy fixer for the rogue. Right, right. But I guess what I'm saying is... But no, the, the, the crafting system is not the exciting part here. Right. So that's a, that's what I'm trying to say, is the fun there is figuring out where to place them and testing that. Right. Not rolling for your trap creation DC. Frequent listeners to this show know that I have been trying to solve crafting and tabletop games for roughly 10 solid years, and I ain't got it yet, but I'm getting closer. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. Rolling craft checks is not it. That is not it, Chief. But um, if you can get around that step of the process, the tower defense model of play is potentially amazing. Um, anyway, I think we could probably move on to, to dungeon ecology. Yeah, we can. This is essentially dungeon dressing, but with things that are alive or quasi-alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know your green slimes, your brown molds, your your other major destroyers of property value. And once again, here's another section where I'd probably be in love with this if I was, you know, 14 reading this because it's yeah, awesome. Th- there's nothing wrong with this at all. It's it's perfectly good. Um, philosophy around wandering monsters is one of those big dividing points between GMs and D and D because, frankly, we still haven't agreed on what the words even mean. Um. Or, or when you do the rolling for a wandering monster, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. But again, so the advice in here, or the the guidelines, or whatever you want to call it, the things that it asks you to think about when you're thinking about wandering monsters, uh, it's workable, it's decent, it's fine. Yeah. Um, and then it goes to random dungeons and gives you a nice random door table type. There was actually random uh, furniture furnishings tables back before that we didn't mention. So. I think that in the end of the DMG too, remember I said that the thing it's missing is random dungeon creation tables that were right. in the end of the first edition. Yes. And so this kind of puts some of that back. Kind Absolutely of. it does, yeah. Um, there's, there's very much a sense that you can just have some good lonely fun with uh, percentile dice and go to town. And you're going to wind up with a ton of encounters. Um, you guys have some interesting times with like the increasing difficulty as you go deeper in the dungeon. Um, um, and then it gives a nice little example. It gives you the monastery cellar. Yeah. And so it, you know, it's, it's a nice little example. Uh, I mean, it's only, it's only three rooms, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not like it gives you an entire adventure in the middle of the book, right? but it, it's trying to show you, here's how you might, here's what you could create using, those tables and that information. In the right. And, and use cases are, are absolutely great for adventures. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a lot of room to argue that they're, they're too loquacious in some of this material. Um, and so like just stripping out about half the verbiage would make this content more helpful in actual yeah. use at the table. But this did to some extent define a style. I mean, the the thing about this is, is I kind of agree with you, but it's trying to 
This is actually trying to give real advice. For example, if you look at the first room, it gives you the gray, the shaded box, which is supposed to be, you know, it's traditional box text that you're supposed to read to the players, which is just, you know, a literal description of the room size and how tall the ceiling is. And then it has this italicized section that tells you exactly how to make this room on a map. Yeah. It says to represent this chamber, use the four by four square room on the left side of the dungeon map. It's adjacent to the four by five square room. You can use the cutouts provided. It's trying to show a new DM how to put together something that was created from a table and make it into the battle map. Yep. Which is important because up until now it, you know, the third edition is the first edition where it's, it's assumed you're going to be using maps and minis. Not that you couldn't use them before, that they weren't used before. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm implying. What I'm saying is third edition, it's expected. Yep. yep. And it, it's possible to run Theater of the Mind encounters in, in mm-hmm. third, but you are definitely, you have, a, you have a tough road to hoe ahead of you. And you are probably going to soften on that as you go, even if it's just some some very sketchy stuff on some index cards to help track position because positioning is such a key part of uh, just your, your attack math because the Congo line of death of how sneak attack works. Um, Yeah. But so anyway, uh, so I I do agree with you that some of this, uh, some of this stuff is way too wordy. They, they don't really need all this, but on the other hand, if I was brand new and I didn't know how, and I was really unsure, maybe it would be, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to judge in that that's, context. That's super fair. Super fair. Um, and, you know, it, I'm not saying it's a disaster area. That's Oh, yeah. No, from. no, no. I, I do find it interesting that they give that little example and talk about it so much. Yep. Um, but, you know, uh, to, to go to a point you've raised in um, other episodes of other shows here on the Tome Show uh, – they're communicating intent. Mm-hmm. They're being hyper explicit about intent. And yeah, there's a lot of adventures that could stand to toss in some sidebars on the why. Why does this matter to the designer? What are they trying to get to here? Um, do, does this have a point or should I cut this if I'm running short on time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my big, my big, um, critiques of, of most 5e adventures is the intent is often not clearly telegraphed to the, to the reader, to the DM, the person who's going to run that adventure. So some of these leave a lot to be desired. And I could, I could make the same critique of fourth edition modules and third edition modules and second, uh, any module. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, we've never done nearly enough to explain the story at each beat mm-hmm. since you have to be thinking of each encounter as at least one beat and very likely more. Um, and then there's some explanation of how to handle monster statistics. And that's really good. You need that. They're really dense in third ed. Mm-hmm. I mean, when it takes, you know, several inches of a column to describe tiny monstrous spiders with two hit points each that are a threat to exactly no one, because they do 1d3 minus 4 damage, like folks. Do they? Where's... Oh, God. 
full attack, plus five melee, one d three minus four plus poison. Bite. That's got to be a typo. No, it doesn't. No, that's intended. It's just that you have a minimum one. Oh, you have a minimum one. Okay. I think so. So you're always just going to do one. Oh, see, yeah. see, when you started reading that, I was looking actually at the small monstrous spider above it, sure, and I was like, yeah. "That's not the right. It's one d four minus two. I'm like, "What are you reading?" And then I and then I went and yeah. looked. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. Well, and the the great thing is uh, they have um, a, a reach of zero feet, so they have to be in your square to attack you. Right. Yeah. It, it's a lot, and like they get sort of really caught up in all of the individual uh, traits that apply to this thing. Poison, web, tremor sense, vermin traits. Folks, it is two hit points. This is two hit points on the hoof. It's got Wait, a- wait, Brandis, hold on. I need to stop you right there. They get a plus eight competence bonus on hide and move silently checks when they use their webs. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> no, I get what you're saying. I mean, see, and this is this is this is where the my impression of a lot of third edition stat blocks for monsters being way, way overwrought. This is why. Oh yeah, they're super over engineered. Yeah. But but they're enormously over engineered. And you can imagine needing this in some incredibly small corner cases, but right. uh, for, for the great majority of play, this is wasted text. But remember what they were going for, though. Consistency. Yep. Right? Yep. So you can't make some of the monsters not have that huge stat block, and some do. No, I You can't. have to do them all the same. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. It's just it's just uh, unfortunate that the the two of the examples they picked are basically inconsequential creatures. Right. You know what I mean? Designing for uh, brevity and clarity from first principles is a good plan. People should do that. Yeah. Anyway, long section on how to read this. I, so I, I want to tell you that I do appreciate this section, this 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 statistics block section, because okay. it's the only place that it actually spells out what SA really means, what SQ really means, what AL means, what SV means, right? Um, Because I say that, and that sounds probably stupid to anybody who played a lot of third edition, but what is the difference between SA and SQ if you don't know, if you've never played third edition before? Those two things, what is that? Yep. I mean, I know now, don't get me wrong, I don't need you to tell me now, but I did not know this for a long time, and some there have been occasions where I've had third edition books, you know, monster manuals or whatever, and I've run third edition two or three times, and I would I constantly be looking. Okay, wait, what's A again? What's SA again? What's SQ? What like what? What's the difference between these things? And what is the you know? And it's never really actually very well spelled out anywhere except right here. Yep, which says something, but that's you know. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's some sections on wilderness adventures. Uh, back to how to get lost. Some terrain descriptions, some some hazards like forest fires and whatnot. Yep. And and this is in its own way also very prescriptive. You get into the really fine gradations in mountain mm-hmm. terrain features. Right. You know, gradual slope. Alpine cross reference against alpine meadow for a fifty percent um, something. Right. <laughs> percent chance of something. I don't know what's a percent chance of. I think it's um, how likely it is that a given square has a terrain element in it. Oh, for God's sake. That's for the forest terrain. Sure. So once again, here here they have these very prescriptive things 
And some of these tables are not easy to read or easy to understand what they're trying to say. But again, they, they devolve into um, this situation. For example, light undergrowth provides concealment and increases the DC of tumble and move silently checks by two. A steep slope increases the DC of tumble checks by two. Right. You know, you get, you get into all of a sudden more tiny rules minutia. I mean, this would be an amazing video game because the computer would manage it. You would have, you know, a buffer, debuffer, whatever, based on the things the computer had assigned to the square you're standing in. Great. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> anyway, I'm I'm moving fairly quickly through this section. Yeah, um, yeah. So it talks about all these different types of terrains and what makes them difficult and some things to consider. And then it talks about weather and it gives you some random weather tables, some effects of wind, it has a bunch of wilderness encounter charts, just like it had uh, dungeon encounter charts. And then we get to urban adventures. Right. Um, which is largely all handled in the same wise. You know, there are a bunch of tables. There are incredibly extensive tables here for things for your various urban encounters. There is not, in fact, and I'm pleased to say this, a random harlot table. <laughs> yes. We Thank can goodness. grow from uh, incredibly retrograde to merely somewhat retrograde. Um, <laughs> but the the table uh, 327 buildings is sort of a, uh, a domain management. Uh, table uh, crying in, in the corner of this urban adventures <laughs> right. section. Uh, huge castle, a million gold pieces. Good luck. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a decent section. It, it does have uh, some of that um, descriptions of walls and gates and guards and soldiers and siege engines and stuff. They do have the rules minutia tucked in, but there's also some descriptive stuff that I would probably enjoy reading if, if I was experiencing this for the first time. Yep. Um, and I do appreciate some of the things that it talks about. For example, it talks about crowds on an urban street, right? Yeah. It talks about uh, chasing people on rooftops, chasing people through sewers. It's not It's not a bad section. The lights in the city, what kind of lighting is there? You know, th- these are things that people need to know if they're, if they're going to run an adventure or at least part of an adventure in a town. That's, that's nice to think of. I mean, it's very, once again, like much of the other advice, it's kind of basic and nice and good, basically mediocre. It's not, most of it's not wow grade stuff, um, but most of it's not bad either, other than the little rules sentences. Yeah, it's just, it, it remains very dense and sort of, you're going to have to read the whole thing very carefully if you're going to try to use any of it. And so that actually goes to the fact that this is really a reference document that you use when you're prepping an adventure. Right. Right. It's not necessarily something that you would read from cover to cover. It is really a reference document, which is actually something that we've said about both of the other DMGs too. So Yep. So the next chapter is chapter four, non-player characters. This is NPC building as demographics. Right. Uh, we've talked about this a bit in other episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think comparatively to a lot of skills and powers content uh, last year around this time. Yep. Uh, yep. Yep. We had that whole demographics table and we talked about how many, you know, 18th level wizards there were <laughs> in, right. in the population, give, given the population density and all that. And, and there's very much a sense of that going into this. Um, there's also some advice on how to be a villain. Some pointers for well-played villains. Well, mm. 
I think it says a lot about this DMG that that is not even a whole column of a page, but it, it's some of the best advice in the whole chapter. It needed to be three pages. I don't care. Like, keep working till you come up with more stuff to say because a well-played villain is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, and unfortunately, you know what's funny is um, the points they make are well-received, but not well-explained. I agree. It, this could be expanded to three pages, this one section. It really digging into how to implement some of this stuff. Mm-hmm, right, exactly. is one of the things that always uh, challenges me. Things like take hostages. Well, uh, I can't believe you would give me rules for climbing 18 different kinds of wall, but not good rules for, Right. I've got the hostage at sword point, what happens next? Right. Yeah. It gets two sentences. Right. Well, that's what I was thinking about the used lackeys. It says, don't have a major villain confront the PCs herself unless necessary. Eventually, the PCs will want to take the fight to her, but she should use underlings, cohorts, and summoned creatures to challenge the characters whenever possible. Nevertheless, don't deny the PCs the satisfaction of ultimately having the opportunity to defeat her. Okay, like, write me two more pages on that, because I could use some information about what kind of lackeys, how tough should they be, should they have a a power struggle with the boss, like... At what point do you let the boss show herself? How do you work clues in so that they know that these are just lackeys and not the main people? Like, Right. And I mean, there's a whole tabletop game that, as far as I can prove, was writ to uh, expand this section into it, its core conceit of play. That mm-hmm. game is Knight, Knight's Black Agents with the Conspiramid. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> if you need to understand how uh, Ladder of Lackeys connects back to the master vampire that is the game for you mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i say that with a deep sense of praise because that's a that's a useful piece of how do these npcs relate to each other well if there's a power struggle between the the gun runners in romania and the art thieves in paris mm-hmm. that that conspiracy is going to help you work it out well that's that's pretty good lackey stuff mm-hmm. um, and i mean certainly in dnd one of the ultimate logic problems of using lackeys is that unless you are really costing the PCs resources that they're going to miss once they encounter the boss, you're doing a good job of feeding them XP. Right. And I don't know, just to insert my own real piece of advice for presenting villains, just put everything into what the villain does that is evil. Don't put everything into how do they oppose the PCs the whole dynamic is just we oppose each other because we oppose each other if you do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Focus on why they're evil and why the PCs want them gone. Yeah. Um, anyway, we move on to NPC classes. <laughs> yes. Just going to just gonna drop that and move on. Uh, well, so there is, there, there is a table that you skipped, and it is the prices for hireling services. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and um, these prices – super familiar from the second ed – DMG. Yep. And first ed, uh, these prices are, are feel really low because it's very generic ones. It's not the the enormous tables of here's your sage and what kind of a sage and what do they know and what level are they and how much do they right. cost per level and what else do you want them to do? And Well, this is a sage that needs some help with his grant writing, I'm just going to say. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, moving along. So Sorry, NPC classes um, – Folks, if you are reading Tasha's Culture of Everything right now, and mm-hmm. you may very well be, this is going to look a lot like the sidekicks. Yep. Uh, that's not really a coincidence. This is also right. 
basically the same as the um, expert warrior and spellcaster that we talked about from Ernest Arcana in our recent series. These ideas just keep sort of circling around as the building blocks of D&D. Well, because there's a consistent problem of how do you have a group of NPCs that are important enough to interact with the PCs on a regular basis, but not really have any stats ready for them. Sure. But you also, in especially in third edition, don't want to create entire PC-classed characters for that NPC who may or may not become very necessary or whatever. I feel that I can assure you that most adventure writers did, in fact, create PC-classed characters, but that's fine. Uh, right, but I'm saying as a DM, you're not going to create a PC-classed NPC for every shop owner for every guide that might be leading you from one town to the next, for every caravan guard, right? Like, for some of them, sure. But are you doing it for all of them? I mean, I don't know. Maybe in third edition, people did. But it seems to me like this is an attempt to make that a little easier. Uh, So I'm just going to spoil something for our listeners. When we get to the Dungeon Master's Guide 2, you're going to see some stuff with how the game imagined implementing this it's going to get real folks and mm-hmm. I, I we can't really do it justice in voice uh, <laughs> here in podcast land but right you you need to check this thing out and see just the the scale of minutia that we're really talking about right all right i'm good i mean yeah so uh the second the, the dmg2 for third edition is going to be fun to talk about but anyway so you get my point, though, right? Absolutely, like, yeah. I, I feel like the intent of this section is, hey, DM, we know that your job is already hard enough. Here's how to make a commoner without having to expend a ton of brain space on creating an actual level one PC. Sure. Right? Yeah. Which is good. It's a good idea. No, it is. Um, the the NPC tables of stuff are great. They're, they're great. Um, they could... Maybe answer one or two more questions for you, but they do have space limitations. Right. Uh, I'll just say that uh, I am pretty sure people were selling, you know, PDFs of, or, or maybe whole dead tree books of. Okay, I have just done stat blocks of NPC wizards from one to twenty. All right. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. clerics. Now barbarians. Go and you know if you did three or four variations at every level. That's a phenomenal tool, if an extraordinarily annoying one to create in third ed. Right, and he, but here it is in this DMG though. Well, sure, I'm talking about adding the feats. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, yeah. So that's what the next several pages is literally NPC cleric. Here's a table with first through twentieth level. NPC fighter. Here's a table with first through twentieth level. Uh, a- a- as you said, it just gives you the number of skill points and feats that that person would have. It doesn't choose them for you, so it doesn't do all the work. Yep. Uh, but it does quite a bit of it, especially if you're just on the fly wanting some basic stats. Yep. Uh, and then you get adjustments by race or kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Which is a ton of CR ability score, skill, and so on adjustments for all kinds of different humanoids. Right, um, and we're we're really kind of distinguishing uh, NPC from monster. Right, for sure. Yes, yeah. Although some of these would uh, possibly fall into the monster category, but that's okay. 
You are so judgy about where rats, Sam. I am, and and doppelgangers, <laughs> um, and uh, yes, I am. You can be judgy about doppelgangers once you can't literally play one in spoilers. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it gives this nice uh, 100 traits for you to roll on. And, you know, this is very reminiscent of that, uh, that table that we talked about in, in the second edition DMG with the, it's split it into five. There's uh, 20 groups and then each of them has five. And, uh, you know, so there's five different ways to be charming. There's five different ways to be uh, genuine. There's five different ways to be kindhearted. There's five, you know, that, that whole table that we talked about. Um, this is a much simpler D 100 table. It's a hundred part table that, you know, gives you traits like this person's very tall or this person slurs their words or this person is observant or this person has a tattoo, you know, um, it's fine. It's, um, you know, yep. I, I love this. It's a, a number 100 is no sense of humor. See number 26. <laughs> yeah, that's rude. Yeah, isn't that, that? That's rude. Folks, there is no number 26 in this table. Yes, they are. They are testing to see if you have a sense of humor. And then we get to campaigns, chapter five. Yep. Um, this is this is nice and advicey. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I, 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 I do like that we get um, characters in the world around them, class roles, and society. I talked right. about how much I like this in the second of DMG, and mm-hmm. I will I will stand by it that this is good content here as well. Uh, yep. the, the section of the sorcerer does sort of hammer home the why even our sorcerers for me. I, I appreciate <laughs> right. that. Yeah, uh, the very first sentence. <laughs> to the general populace, sorcerers are indistinguishable from wizards. Cool, thanks. Yep. Thanks. We're done. Okay. We don't need the other two paragraphs. <laughs> yep. <laughs> just, just move on to the next uh, class because yeah. we decided to store all the information in the next one. Good. <laughs> um, anyway, this, this is perfectly good stuff. Yeah, um, it is. And they're going to talk also about uh, campaign models, uh, war and other calamities. So that's, that's good stuff. Like uh, a, a war epic is a, super super classic campaign model that is mm-hmm. not not going away um it's literally the first one right so it's probably safe uh, yeah and then campaign issues yeah maybe surprisingly to me they jump straight to campaign issues which to some extent is recapitulating earlier content from the book mm-hmm. uh, yeah to some extent but I, I do think that they try to hedge it toward you know okay, now this is kind of the second time you're hearing this sort of thing, so think about this in terms of your entire campaign. Eh, it's fine. Yep. Um, you know, I, it has a, has a whole section on changing alignment, I, which... Um, I, I do want to note that they have a, a rogue named Garrett, and I think that's great. I think that means someone was playing Thief the Dark Project, <laughs> which, you know, everyone should do once, even though I haven't. <laughs> So yeah, like the the two paragraphs they spent on character power levels. This needs to be a chapter. Mm-hmm. Like the the they're, they're trying to say in these two paragraphs what the second edition book high level campaigns had to say, uh, minus all the epic level content, right? Right. Which yep. will get its own book in third ed. Yeah, you can tell what they are concerned about in this book based on what they give space to. Yeah, and they're not not concerned about character power levels 
It's just they are not trying to solve the problem for you here. They're just saying, hey, this could be a thing. This might be a, a difficulty. How are you going to solve that? Um, excuse me? <laughs> yeah. But going into world building, well, good world building advice. People have written many fine books about it, and they will write many more, and it will never go out of style. Yeah, I think that's... People have been enjoying world building since at least the Brontes, so I think it's safe <laughs> as an art. Um, I think that I think so too, and and some of this stuff is is um, really good. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm not digging into it in a lot of detail right now, but mm-hmm. ultimately, like this is fine. I mean, we we kind of touched on this when we talked about economies because this yep. is talking about how big is a town, who's in it, how much money do they have to spend, right? Um, uh, racial mix of communities. Uh, I actually particularly like that they have uh, three different types of communities, right? The, the isolated community that is mostly one race with a tiny smattering of others, the mixed and the integrated. It's, it's good to remember to do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a, a, a topic that uh, came up a couple of times in working on Seas of Adari, um, and especially in going to Under the Seas of Adari, because um, in writing fantasy, it's so easy to fall back on, well, this is the land of the insert race name here. And most of the cities are, you know, predominated by that race. But that's not that's not the Vidari aesthetic, right? It's a much more everyone is everywhere. Everyone has had to rely on each other to survive. And so all the communities should be much more integrated. And we should be telling that story with just everything that we do. And I'm telling, I'm saying this in this podcast to encourage other GMs to do the same. Use all of these things to tell the story that you mean to tell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because just the kind of person who can be on the street in a city and not draw notice is an enormous amount of characterization. Right. Uh, the whole weirdness of the city of Sigil hangs on that right there. Mm-hmm. Like an archangel and a barbed devil can walk down the street, uh, presuming they have open carry laws, drinking a beer, um, <laughs> and it's not even strange. That would be the one thing that is not that is not <laughs> right. No open carry. Well, I mean, the Lady <laughs> of Pain does not approve of you committing a party <laughs> foul in her street. All right, that's what I know. But no, it's true. Um, and and part of the part of the thing with large urban areas is. You can be anonymous. Yep. Well, if you're the only tiefling in a 99% human urban setting, you're not anonymous. Right. You stick out like a sore thumb. The question is, yeah, does every encounter become about how you're different? Right. And right. That, that's a it's a huge question in world building and in what things can be player races. Right. Um, anyway, uh, we then get into things like taxes. It's two paragraphs, not two pages. Right. <laughs> uh, political systems. Um, again, much boiled down from what I think you'd find in some earlier DMGs where mm-hmm. they would just be going for a peak SAT score. <laughs> right. <laughs> what is a gerontocracy? Right. What yeah. is a kleptocracy? <laughs> um, and if you don't know those words, folks, look around. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> Yes. Um, so let's move along with that one. <laughs> that was that was great. I love Thanks. it. Thanks. I was proud of that. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and, and to be fair, while it, while it was obvious, you know, often felt like an exercise in improving your SAT vocabulary. Also, it was a way to use terminology that might not be known by everyone. And that increases the sort of fantastical fantasy nature of the, of the world, of the oh, setting. Oh, sure. Like, tossing out words that, uh, the audience, has to think for a minute to like etymologize in their brains. Right. That, that is some deep Jack Vance action right, right there. Right. And of course, Gary was into it. Sure. Of course. And so the question is, do you, is it necessary? Do you need it? Well, it depends on your preferences, I think, but is it necessary for it to be in this book? I don't think so. I think they did a good enough job no, I- of, of providing enough of a, a sort of generalized main types of political systems that right. it's fine. And I think that the sort of um, DMG as initiatory experience is kind of dead in the water here. Um, they've gone full textbook in my view. Right. They've tried to rationalize everything and by making it rational, well, it isn't founded in uh, mystery and intuition nearly as much. For better or for worse. Right, for better or for worse. And also because of that, that idea also leaks into the idea of, well, none of it's optional. It's all prescribed. And it's it's all fair game and part of the game. Yep. Uh, so then it talks about social classes and magic. You know, it has a discussion on magic items and superstitions. Then it talks about religion, which follows well along that, I guess. Which it which it hangs on their uh, default religion choices mm-hmm. for for third edition. Very Greyhawk. So here's the here's my one problem with this with this section. Yeah, hit me. Okay. No force affects society more strongly than religion. You need to match the religions in your world with the societies you present. Okay, fine. Uh, that fair point. Got it. Then basically that's all it says, and then it says, "Okay, the pantheon. Here's your pantheon. Here's here's a sample pantheon." It has no real discussion about the fact that a pantheistic society is intrinsically different from a monotheistic society. Sure, yeah. And yet here I'm presenting to you a pantheon. By definition, that means that the people, the majority of people take all of these to be gods yep. and therefore it's a pantheon, which right. means they are all polytheistic. Right. Uh, and D&D has been uh, rightly accused for uh, roughly four and a half decades of presenting uh, a large number of parallel monotheisms. Sure. Yes, which exactly. is just completely bananas right. and makes no sense with even what the text itself says. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that the actual like writing to transform that into something that the GMs will know how to use in you know describing religious systems that many of those GMs don't ascribe to, uh, that hasn't been done. It needs to be done. But Yeah, but you know the thing is though for 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 the consumption of most people, it hasn't been done. Right. But I, I feel like um it's so without uh, requiring you know twenty pages, you could actually just add one more paragraph to this section, explaining that you know pantheism is very different from monotheism, and 
here's an example of how a commoner might respond to a bad harvest, right? And then later on that year, how they might respond to the next planting season or the new year. And in each of those cases, they might be, you know, asking for supplication from a different deity and explaining that that particular commoner, it's it's not odd for them to understand that all three of those deities are powerful entities in the universe. Yep. Full stop. That's it. That's all they need is two, one or two examples. Here's a commoner. Here's how a, a squire or a knight might see that, right? Somebody yep. who is pious in particular to one deity, but understands that all the others are also in existence and a commoner who, you know, doesn't even have a, a household God or a family God that they particularly worship. But, you know, I mean, it's not that hard. They could do it in one paragraph. Yep. And by the way, this isn't a knock on third edition. This is a problem that has been had for, you know, a long time. So anyway, it, yeah, it, it is just as present in uh, first ed content as it is in fifth. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Straight up. So the next section is building a different world. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not the the right person to explain to you the you know, how problematic the Asian weapons table is here. Um, so we're gonna just sort of put the problematic stamp on that and skate. Um, but the other thing here is Renaissance weapons. So sure, there's damage values for Renaissance weapons. In case you have a pistol or a musket, great, fine. Yeah, there's a little uh, tidbit on technology and whatnot, so yeah, whatever. And then okay. modern era weapons in case mm-hmm. you find some sort of crashed spaceship. Mm-hmm. Right. And then it moves on to talking about other planes. Yep, adventuring in other planes. And mm-hmm. we get magic traits and elemental energy traits, and it can be a lot to manage, especially if you're also trying to manage the you know, physical terrain as described in, in the previous things on Dungeons and Wilderness and how that should apply in those in those planes because this is sort of terrain-ish, but also sort of not. And you're just stacking up a lot of different, you know, one to two paragraphs of conditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's not an error. It's just the logical conclusion of what the situation creates. Right. Right. Yep. Um, yep. We get plane descriptions, um, ethereal, ethereal plane, plane of shadow. Um, the plane of shadow is very much the proto uh, shadow fell. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yep. And that's super interesting. I I really like what's here. I like the the um, dark city. Really good movie. Um, just <laughs> just a, a really fun, weird, creepy movie. Um, the, uh, art on the facing page of the great wheel cosmology is the heckin' best. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I really like what's here. It is not super easy to decipher because they got so artsy with it, mm-hmm. but it is absolutely the like, magic item. I want to like, have a, um, a fabricator like, build and let me hand to my PCs. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece of art. It definitely is. So we also have the astral, um, then the elemental plane of air, earth, fire, water, heart. No, <laughs> sorry, not heart. Um, <laughs> Negative energy, positive energy, 
uh, Isgard. Yeah, so it, it kind of goes through all these. And and here's the thing is, all of these, it gives a... Lord, I may have, Sam, do you know I may have literally never read this chapter of this really? book? Really? I think there's a pretty good chance I never read this. I just completely skipped it every <laughs> single time. I'm not sure. Like, I saw the art of the Great Wheel Cosmology dozens of times. Just right. <laughs> the the pages here are so dense and so not what I was ever looking for at that given moment. Right. I may have never right. read this. Well, see, that's what I was going to say is it gives a little, little, it gives a several paragraph write up on each of these sort of planes. I think it's each of them, at least most of them. I'm sure they're all in here. And some of them get very mechanistic and some of them are not mechanistic. In other words, some of them go into that you need this DC and if you want to do this kind of activity and blah, blah, blah. Some of them have, you know, they tell you how to generate a random encounter for these. You would, for example, in uh, the Blessed Fields of Elysium, your random encounters would alternate between heavenly encounters and beatific encounters. Whereas uh, in the Beast Lens, you're only using the beatific encounters. Okay. Uh, sure. <laughs> you know. Um, this is a kind of a nice intro. These things are, uh, um, a nice intro. And by the way, all those tables are there. So the heavenly encounters tables there and all that stuff. Um, but the, you know, it's a nice intro for people who don't know anything about the planes. Uh, it's yep. fine. Yep. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm disappointed that they don't explain anything about who's in charge of the clockwork Nirvana of, uh, Mechanus. I think it's important <laughs> because it's one of my favorite running jokes. <laughs> Why is that? Because Primus sucks. Oh, that's right. I forgot Primus sucks. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Man, I appreciate you just help me help me build up this setup. That's very good, Sam. <laughs> I think I was the only one that got that joke the last time you said it too. <laughs> well, I I have some friends who listen to the podcast who really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, in any case, uh, so then it talks about creating a cosmology and oh. planar traits. Oh, there's there's one uh, there's one plane missing that I, I do want to note for any fan of four E or five E. Okay, it's the Feywild. The Feywild, yes. There's there's not a uh, plane of uh, Fairy or the Feywild or whatever like described here. You can kind of imagine that maybe the Wilderness of the Beastlands is that, or Peaceable Kingdoms of Arcadia might be that, but that's not a given, right? Or the Olympian Glades of Arborea. Maybe, right? Um, um, yeah. But, but those don't like really have the same kind of space for the Gloaming Court or Unseelie mm-hmm. that right. is so integral to the Feywild. Uh, so it's just a, it's a major piece of how the conception of the cosmos in D and D just really suddenly turned, mm-hmm. and, and now fair and everything. It's like there are phase subclasses of one kind or another for all kinds of different things, and I think it's great. I mean, uh, you know, the fay existed. It's just that it wasn't such a focus, right? And so they didn't need their own uh, need. It's a probably a weird way to say that, but you know what I'm saying? Because they weren't a focus, it was sort of a not it was a non necessary yeah. element to the planar discussion. Right. And you know, we we sort of don't talk a lot about how I think some of the 
way you'd want to approach that here is to say that while the unsealier gloaming court is the drow, and then the Sealy court is the Olympian glades of Arborea, maybe that right. Um, I, I don't know. There's <laughs> there are ways you could try to make it fit, but yeah, it could be. I mean, so the question there is, you know, did they create the Feywild? So that they, because they had a conception and they didn't want to just meld those planar locations together, or did they really do something different when they did the Feywild? Um, I I mean, the the deep core of the Feywild, the reason it exists is to be a place you're actually going to go and not a place that you sort of have in the book, but never go. Right. Like... The, the whole point of the planar realignment and overhaul in 4E is to make the planes a place you'll go. Right. Um, and so there isn't a lot of great adventuring to do in Arborea. Everything's fine there. That's the mm-hmm. point. Right. It's heaven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and you're already going to the Underdark. Well, you're still going to the Underdark. That's never changing. Mm-hmm. It's just that the drow are going to be... Uh, if the drow ever were sort of unsealy... We're just completely getting rid of that. And it's a little weird because they should sort of be the deck alphar mm-hmm. of, uh, of Norse mythology, maybe, but uh, that works less and less. It, it, does, it doesn't work in the very initial conception of Drow, and it works less as you go on. Anyway, we don't have to keep going down that line. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just, I think, because I love the Feywild same um just as as an adventuring location i love the idea of it even without really dealing with the courts sure just the idea of the magic having outpaced effects right and outlandish you know sort of midsummer night's dream style characters in there uh is fantastical and it brings that sort of fairy tale element back into the game in a way that Arborea, for example, doesn't, right? Yep. Um, so I think that's maybe where we'll leave it. So then we get to characters. Oh man, I do not feel much need to dig into this. Yeah. I mean, so uh, so here's the overview. Um, you get some ability score discussion, how to how to do point by, for example. Um, you get some discussion with uh, race and class, you know, combinations. You get some monsters as races discussion. Uh, you get some how to modify character classes. This is all very, um, you know. Oh, and then you get uh, some some prestige classes, and you know some some advice on how to create new classes, uh, look at prestige classes that are perhaps optional because of the way that, you know, perhaps you don't want them in your game. It, it, it's, it really it could be a chapter that's just appended on to the PHB. Yep. Um, yep. And um, it, if the prestige classes aren't player facing, how are they going to qualify? Right. Well, and, but that's, that's why I say perhaps optional because, you know, Perhaps you don't want to allow a thaumaturgist or shadow dancer or something like I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Good heavens! How could someone ever not want to allow a misdemeanor? <laughs> I'm just um, saying, right? Like yeah, you'll you know. note that was not phrased as a question. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's some uh, learning new skills, learning new spells, downtime 
fixed hit points, creating PCs above first level. I mean, this is all very typical. And then there's a bunch of information on familiars with their stat blocks. And this literally is just a, hey, here's some stuff to think about in terms of PC classes and blah. Oh, and then let's talk about unusual mounts. And, and then, companions. and then, epic characters as sort of the stopgap until they can release uh, epic level handbook. Right, and that's the chapter. I mean, I, 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 we're sort of joking about giving it short shrift, but there's really not a lot to say about it unless we were to really specifically talk about any you know specific prestige class or something in there. And, and there's that's we could do an episode on the idea of prestige classes, and that's worth discussing, but. Sure. It's that's, way out of scope yeah. for this book. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And then we get to Chapter 7, Magic Items. Yep. Um, and, and this is going to have a lot of the material around repairing and improving magic items. And then all of that sort of adjective noun uh, magic item structure I was talking about. For every kind of weapon, every kind of shield, every kind of armor is going to be built on that aside from a very small number of this thing is a complete item in itself because it is an item with a name or whatever. Um, And so it's not adjective noun. Like the Holy Avenger is a whole thing in itself, right? It is not a modifier placed on an existing object. You just don't do that. The nine live stealers the same way. On the other hand, you've got just a, a flaming longsword or a Sylvan scimitar. Sure, sure. And adamantine shield, yep. adamantine battle axe, glamoured armor, uh, light fortification armor, and so on, and so on, and right. so on. I mean, there are books and books and books of this content that got published. And I mean, and and this whole chapter is lists and descriptions of a ton of magic items. And in fairness, D and D does very much hang on there being cool stuff to find. Oh yeah, for sure. That's I mean, I'm very yeah. Important. Yep. Yeah, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying, again, like the last chapter, there's not really a lot of reasons for us to go over all of this. It's a lot of tables, a few pictures, and a lot of stats. Yep. Um, this is very much about what came to be called the Christmas tree effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, there needs to be an mm-hmm. ornament on every little branch of that tree where you right. have done it wrong. And yep. that should be timely for, you know, this Christmas. <laughs> right, right. If your family does Christmas trees... Then you do uh, third ed magic items. Yes, there you go. A magic item on every branch. Yep, that sounds um, good. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a campaign promise right there. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and then it gets to intelligent items, and it tells you, um, you know, how to determine alignment, how to determine its powers, how to determine its ego. You know, that that's that sort of typical item. Then it has a cursed item section, some drawbacks specific curses, specific cursed items, um, you know, describes those. Then it talks about artifacts. You know, th- this is this is a traditional magic item chapter, so I'm not saying anything probably that uh, anybody is is um, is concerned about or surprised until we get to the end where it says creating magic items. Yep. And um, is there anything you want to say about that? I mean, there's the difference between masterwork and other materials and then magic item creation costs and estimating gold piece values. This is very much exactly the deal that I'm always talking about with Mm -hmm. um, magic items as progress bar. It's really, really evident here and and you're getting to start from the foundation rather than, well, I found this plus one sword. 
and I want to attack more stuff onto it. Well, mm-hmm. no, you, you you start with a masterwork sword, and you attack on whatever you want to attack on. <laughs> um, and you know, there's a, a huge number of uh, ways you can modify stuff here, and it just gets more and more and more as the books go on. Right. And then the same happens with wands. You know, you're getting 50 charges of that spell or some portion of 50 charges of that spell in that wand. And so that's where the wand of Cure Wounds that is your out-of-combat healing battery comes from. And then there's a whole thing on body slot affinities and what you should have to pay if you want a given effect outside of its normal body slot, which is an incredibly potent um, paragaming approach because... The cloak slot is uh, such a, a useful, important thing. Um, if you're a sorcerer or bard, you have to have a cloak of charisma there, and so you won't be getting cloak of resistance. Well, that's a problem. Could you maybe find a way to get charisma somewhere else? Right. Well, not by this. <laughs> but, you know, or at least not without paying a lot of extra. Um, but, I mean, for my money... Uh, this is very much trading. There's a lot of different things to find with none of it feels special at all. It's really hard to get to that feeling of, wow, I found something really cool and special because this is in the DMG, but it feels player facing because you can make all this stuff. So it's something you have to surf through to make your thing. If you're playing in a game where somehow the GM is comfortable doing all of the bookkeeping and keeping it all mysterious from you, then that's really cool. But it wasn't how any of us were playing in those 3035 campaigns. Um, in, in no small part uh, because several of us were running campaigns, and so there couldn't be um, just one person reading the DMG. Uh, yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, the system is meant to work if the player knows how it works right i mean it's not really meant to be hidden i mean okay so i suppose you could interpret it as dm information but honestly to me it feels like the intent is these are things that the the high enough level pc that's going to create this stuff they're going to know yeah this information i agree with that so um anything else you want to say about that chapter no, I, I think uh, I think we're doing just fine. To yeah, I mean we've covered it elsewhere, really too. So, yep. um, and then we get to the next chapter, which I think is misnamed. <laughs> this chapter is called Glossary. It should be called Recap, and it literally is a chapter. It's not the Glossary at the back of the book. It is Chapter Eight Glossary. I think it should just be named Miscellaneous yeah. or. I mean, it's know, kind of a, a recap of major rules concepts that are going to come up, especially around monster abilities. Mm-hmm. Like, If they had yeah. called this monster abilities, they would be telling a lot more of the truth, to be frank. Right, but that's not all that's in the chapter, because it also talks about conditions and vision and... Right. Um, but yes, the whole first, like, several pages is, here are some abilities that a creature might have, and here are some things to think about about what it means, and here's how to adjudicate that. And they need to store as much of that as possible here for for nominally easy lookup because it's uh, going to be a lot. 
Right. And then there's the condition summary. Then there is an environment section, but it's really just about acid effects, darkness, cold water, heat danger, fall, falling. You know, it's it's basically environmental effects that have a mechan- mechanical resolution that you should know and be able to look up. Right. And, and one of the things about this that sort of gets back to our, our running commentary on uh, highly defined and prescriptive text is how many of these things are lengthy bullet point lists. Right. Um, Anti-magic and blindsight and blind sense really spring to mind here um, as do charm and compulsion. Uh, like compare the uh, almost a full column of text for charm and compulsion with the charmed condition in 5e. Right. Right. Um, they're really different approaches on how much needs to be said to get the thing across. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have all the poisons uh, sort of kitted out here with uh, type, initial damage, secondary damage, and price. There's nothing wrong with that. That's quite nice. They're certainly going to murder you because ability score damage is um, <laughs> that is a fast path to a uh, early grave. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Black Lotus extract. You say three d six con followed by three d six con. <laughs> Good luck, bro. <laughs> You're hosed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But right, the, like the, the book ends with um, some templates and some uh, uh, little bits of dungeon dressing that I can. Uh, color photocopy and cut out uh, to use to decorate my dungeon maps. And that's, that's not nothing. That's a cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it was necessary at the time because again, it's the first edition that requires or expects the use of maps and minis. And so why wouldn't you want cool, you know, visuals for the table? I mean, everyone wasn't using their old uh, hero quest box set. You're losing me here. I, I mean, maybe, but if you were a new DM, maybe you didn't have one of those. But, but it, was a, it was a beloved board game from my childhood, Sam. <laughs> surely, surely, along with a car in every garage and a, a, a chicken in every stockpot, there was a, a hero quest set mailed to every kid uh, on or about their 10th birthday, right? I doubt it. And don't call me Shirley. That's... that's Barbaric. I can't, no one can live under these conditions. <laughs> and then, and then there's this great. There's an index, okay. And then the thing I love about the index is there's actually a list of sidebars <laughs> in the index. Yeah. Oh my god. And it's enormous. <laughs> uh, I love so, it. So my favorite thing about the very end of the book, I do have a favorite thing about the end here, is that I still have my um, feedback survey card. Tell us what you think about the Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide three point five. <laughs> wow! And, and yeah, like much like when I opened up my Everway box set, I really want to fill this out and send it in just to confuse someone. <laughs> At least this nice. is a game they remember they own, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I have when I my red box still has its um. Sign up for the RPGA. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Come That's come see good. us at Gen Con 10 or whatever it was. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, so that rounds out the book. That was um as a whirlwind tour. Yeah, it was a whirlwind tour. Um, but you but you know, uh, so hopefully uh we have highlighted the massive sea change in attitude in this DMG compared to the two previous DMGs that we looked at. Now, granted, it might seem to you, dear listener, that we spent so much time on the first and second edition DMG, and we looked at Minutia, and we sort of lovingly caressed those books as we went through and talked about all the stuff we love about them and only a few of the things that we dislike. But the reason that we have sort of rushed through third edition DMG 1 and have not really spent probably seems like we haven't spent as much time on it as we did on the other two, is that we also want to do the 3.5 DMG 2. Yes. So that is going to be a deeper dive, possibly, or feel like a deeper dive than than what this one was. Um, but hopefully this was satisfactory. I, I certainly hope you've all enjoyed it, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I certainly hope so. And, and I certainly actually enjoyed it. I feel like, or I often feel like when I talk about 3rd Edition that I'm... Um, that I come off as dismissive or that I dislike the system or whatever. And I don't mean to be dismissive. There are things that I can find that I like about it, but yeah, it's, it's probably my least favorite edition. That doesn't mean it's a bad game or that it's designed poorly or that they did a horrible job or that their writing sucks. That's not what I mean at all. It just means it's not my preference, Um, Uh, but it's nicely done. Well, I think we're going to need to call it there for tonight's episode. Sam, where can the listeners find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel, or you can find me on the web at RPGmusings.com, or you can find me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash DM Samuel, or at Midgardia RPG, which is an, also a Twitch stream. So twitch.tv slash Midgardia. That's where I'm running my Rhyme of the Frost Maiden game. Very nice. So, Brandis, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. My personal blog is brandisstoddard.com. I write for tribality.com. And my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. Excellent. And so, dear listener, I think we will leave you. Wear your mask. Wear your mask. Oh my god. It's not cute. You gotta do it. <laughs>